Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, two great stories from one of our favorite writers, Australian Banjo Patterson. Our first story, Concerning a Steeplechase Writer. Of all the ways in which men get a living, there's none so hard and so precarious as that of steeplechase riding in Australia. It is bad enough in England, where steeplechases only take place in winter, when the ground is soft, where the horses are properly schooled before being raced, and where most of the obstacles will yield a little if struck and give the horse a chance to blunder over safely. In Australia, the men have to go at racing speed, on very hard ground, over the most rigid and uncompromising obstacles. Iron bark rails clamped into solid posts with bands of iron. No wonder they are always coming to grief, and are always in and out of hospital in splints and bandages. Sometimes one reads that a horse has fallen and the rider has, quote, escaped with a severe shaking, end quote. That shaking, gentle reader, would lay you or me up for weeks, with a doctor to look after us and a crowd of sympathetic friends calling to know how our poor back was. But the steeplechase rider has to be out and about again, riding exercise every morning and schooling all sorts of cantankerous brutes over the fences. These men take their lives in their hands and look at grim death between their horses' ears every time they race or school. The death record among Australian cross-country jockeys and horses is very great. It is a curious instance of how custom sanctifies all things that such horse and man slaughter is accepted in such a callous way. If any theater gave a show at which men and horses were habitually crippled or killed in full sight of the audience, the manager would be put on trial for manslaughter. Our racetracks use up their yearly average of horses and men without attracting remark. One would suppose that the risk being so great, the profits were enormous. But they are not. In the game, as played on our race courses, there is just a bare living for a good capable horseman while he lasts with the certainty of an ugly smash if he keeps at it long enough. And they don't need to keep at it very long. After a few good shakings, they begin to take a nip or two to put heart into them before they go out. And after a while, they have to increase the dose. At last, they cannot ride at all without a regular cargo of alcohol on board, and are either half muzzy or shaky according as they have taken too much or too little. Then the game becomes suicidal, it is an axiom that as soon as a man begins to funk, he begins to fall. The reason is that a rider who has lost his nerve is afraid of his horse making a mistake, and takes a pull, or urges him onward, just at the crucial moment when the horse is rattling up to his fence and judging his distance. That little nervous pull at his head, or that little touch of the spur, takes his attention from the fence, with the result that he makes his spring a foot too far off, or a foot too close in, and smash. The loafers who hang about the big fences rush up to see if the jockey is killed or stunned. If he is, they dispose of any jewelry he may have about him. They have been known almost to tear a finger off in their endeavors to secure a ring. The ambulance clatters up at a canter, the poor rider is pushed in out of sight, and the ladies in the stand say how unlucky they are, that brute of a horse falling after they backed him. A wolfish-eyed man in the ledger stand shouts to a wolfish-eyed pal, Bill, I believe that jock was killed when the chestnut fell. And Bill replies, Yes, damn him, I had five bob on him. 
and the rider, gasping like a crushed chicken, is carried into the casualty room and laid out on a little stretcher, while outside the window the bookmakers are roaring, Four to one, bar one, and the racing is going on merrily as ever. These remarks serve to introduce one of the fraternity who may be considered as typical of all. He was a small, wiry, hard-featured fellow, the son of a stockman on a big cattle station, and began life as a horse-breaker. He was naturally a horseman, able and willing to ride anything that could carry him. He left the station to go with cattle on the road, and having picked up a horse that showed pace, amused himself by jumping over fences. Then he went to Waga, entered the horse in a steeplechase, rode him himself, won handsomely, sold the horse at a good price to a Sydney buyer, and went down to ride it in his Sydney races. In Sydney he did very well. He got a name as a fearless and clever rider, and was offered several mounts on fine animals. So he pitched his camp in Sydney, and became a fully enrolled member of the worst profession in the world. I had known him in the old days on the road, and when I met him on the course one day, I inquired how he liked the new life. "'Well, it's a living,' he said. "'But it's no great shakes. They don't give steeplechase riders a chance in Sydney. There's very few races, and the big sweepstakes keep horses out of the game.' "'Do you get a fair share of the riding?' I asked. "'Oh, yes, I get as much as anybody. "'But there's a lot of them got a notion "'I won't take hold of a horse when I'm told, "'i.e., pull him to prevent him winning. "'Some of these days I'll take hold of a horse "'when they don't expect it.' "'I smiled as I thought there was probably "'a sorry day in store for some backer "'when the jockey took hold unexpectedly. "'Do you have to pull horses then to get employment?' "'Oh, well, it's this way.' he said, rather apologetically. If an owner is badly treated by the handicapper and is just giving his horse a run to get weight off, then it's right enough to catch hold a bit. But when a horse is favorite and the public are backing him, it isn't right to take hold of him then. I would not do it. This was his whole code of morals, not to pull back the reins on a favorite, and he felt himself very superior to the scoundrel who would pull favorites or outsiders indiscriminately. "'What do you get for riding?' I asked him. "'Well,' he said, looking about uneasily, "'we're supposed to get a fiver for a losing mount "'and ten pounds if we win. "'But a lot of the steeplechase owners are what I call battlers, "'men who have no money and get along by owing everybody. "'They promise us all sorts of money if we win, "'but they don't pay if we lose. "'I only got two pounds for that last steeplechase.' Two pounds?' "'I made a rapid calculation.' He had ridden over 18 fences for two pounds. He chanced his life 18 times at less than half a crown a time. Good heavens, I said. That's a poor game. Wouldn't you be better back on the station? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes we get laid a bit to nothing and do well out of a race. And then, you know, a steeplechase rider is somebody, not like an ordinary fellow that's just working. I realized that I was an ordinary fellow who was just working, and felt small accordingly. "'I'm just off to weigh now,' he said. "'I'm riding contractor, and he'll run well, but he always seems to fall at those logs. Still, I ought to have luck today. I met a hearse as I was coming out. I'll get him over the fences somehow.' "'Do you think it lucky, then, to meet a hearse?' "'Oh, yeah, if you meet it. You mustn't overtake it, however.' "'That's unlucky. "'So is a cross-eyed man unlucky. 
"'Cross-eyed men ought to be kept off race-courses.' "'He reappeared clad in his racing rig, "'and we set off to see the horse saddled. "'We found the owner in a great state of excitement. "'It seemed he had no money, absolutely none whatever, "'but had borrowed enough to pay the sweepstakes "'and stood to make something if the horse won "'and lose nothing if he lost, as he had nothing to lose.' "'My friend insisted on being paid two pounds before he would mount, "'and the owner nearly had a fit in his efforts to persuade him to ride on credit. "'At last a backer of the horse agreed to pay two pounds tens, win or lose, "'and the rider was to get twenty-five pounds out of the prize if he won. "'So up he got, and as he and the others walked the big muscular horses round the ring, "'nodding gaily to friends in the crowd, "'I thought of the gladiators going out to fight in the arena with the cry of, "'Hail Caesar!' "'Those about to die salute thee.' "'The story of the race is soon told. "'My friend went to the front at the start "'and led nearly all the way, "'and Contractor was on everyone's lips "'as the big horse sailed along in front of his field. "'He came at the log fence full of running "'and it looked certain that he would get over. "'But at the last stride he seemed to falter, "'then plunged right into the fence, "'striking it with his chest, "'and turning right over, "'landed on his unfortunate rider.' A crowd clustered round and hid horse and rider from view, and I ran down to the casualty room to meet him when the ambulance came in. The limp form was carefully taken out and laid on a stretcher while a doctor examined the crushed ribs, the broken arm, and all the havoc that the horse's huge weight had wrought. There was no hope from the first. My poor friend, who had so often faced death for two pounds, lay very still all the while. Then he began to talk, "'wandering in his mind. "'Where are the cattle?' "'His mind evidently going back to the old days on the road. "'Then quickly, "'Look out there! Give me room!' "'And again, five and twenty pounds, Mary, "'and a sure thing if you don't fall at the logs.' "'Mary was sobbing beside the bed, "'cursing the fence and the money that had brought him to grief. "'At last, in a tone of satisfaction, he said, "'Quite clear and loud. "'I know how it was.' "'There couldn't have been any dead man in that hearse.' "'And so, having solved the mystery to his own satisfaction, "'he drifted away into unconsciousness "'and awoke somewhere on the other side of the big fence "'that we can neither see through nor over, "'but all have to face sooner or later.' "'We'll return to our second story "'right after this sponsor message. "'And now, back to our show.' Banjo Patterson was a well-loved Australian poet, journalist, and writer who focused his work on the rural and Australian outback areas around New South Wales. Along with his contemporary Henry Lawson, he spent a good time in journalism, getting stories for the newspapers, and the next short story emanates from one of those newspaper interviews. This story is called Dan Fitzgerald Explains. The circus was having its afternoon siesta. Overhead, the towering canvas tent spread like a giant mushroom on a network of stalks, slanting beams interlaced with guys and wire ropes. The ring looked small and lonely. Its circle of empty benches seemed to stare intently at it, as though some sort of unseen performance were going on for the benefit of a ghostly audience. Now and again, a guy rope creaked, or a loose end of canvas flapped like faint, unreal applause as the silence shut down again. It did not need much imagination to people the ring with dead-and-gone circus riders performing for the benefit of shadowy spectators packed on those benches. In the menagerie portion, matters were different. 
Here there was a free and easy air. The animals realizing that for the present the eyes of the public were off them, and they could put in the afternoon as they chose. The big African apes had dropped the business of showing their teeth and pretending that they wanted to tear the spectators' faces off. They were carefully and painstakingly trying to fix up a kind of rustic seat in the corner of their cage with a short piece of board, which they placed against the wall. This fell down every time they sat on it, and the whole adjustment had to be gone through again. The camel had stretched himself full length on the tan and was enjoying a luxurious snooze, oblivious of the fact that before long he would have to get up and assume that far-up, ship-of-the-desert aspect. The remainder of the animals were, like actors, resting before their turn came on. Even the elephant had ceased to sway about, while a small monkey, asleep on a sloping tent pole, had an attack of nightmare and would have fallen off his perch but for his big tail. It was a land of the lotus-eater, in which it seemed always afternoon. These visions were dispelled by the entry of a person who said, Do you want to see Dan? And soon Dan Fitzgerald, the man who knows all about the training of horses, came into the tent with Montgomery, the ringmaster, and between them they proceeded to expound the methods of training horse flesh, which was the interview I had come for. What sort of horse do we buy for circus work? Well, it depends on what we want them for. There are three sorts of horses to use in a circus. Ring horses, trick horses, and school horses. But it doesn't matter what he's wanted for. A horse is all the better if he knows nothing. A horse that has been pulled about and partly trained has to unlearn a lot before he is of any use to us. The less he knows, the better it is. Then do you just try any sort of horse? Any sort, so long as he's a good sort. But it depends on what he's wanted for. If we want a ring horse, he has to be a quiet, sober-going animal, not too well-bred and fiery. A ring horse is one that just goes around the ring for the bareback riders and equestrians to perform on. The human being is the star, and the horse is only a secondary performer, a sort of understudy. Yes, that's it, an understudy. He has to study how to keep under the man. Are they hard to train? Their work all depends on the men that ride them. In bareback riding, there's a knack in jumping on the horse. If a man lands awkwardly and jars the horse's back, the horse will get out of step and flinch at each jump, and he isn't nearly so good to perform on. A ring horse must not swerve or change his pace. If you're up in the air, throw in a somersault, and the horse swerves from underneath you. Where are you? Some people think that horses take a lot of notice of the band. Is that so? No, nah, not that I know of. If there are any horses in the show with an ear for music, I haven't heard of them. They take a lot of notice of the ringmaster. Does it take them long to learn this work? Not long. A couple of months will teach a ring horse. Of course, some are better than others. First of all, we teach them to come up to you with the whip, like horsebreakers do. Then we run them round the ring with a lunging rein for a long time. Then, when they're steady to the ring, we let them run with the rein loose, and the trainer can catch hold of it if they go wrong. Then we put a roller on them, a broad surcingle that goes round the horse's body, and the boys jump on them and canter round, holding on to the roller, or standing up, lying down, and doing tricks, till the horse gets used to it. Well? Well, you give them a couple of hours of it, perhaps, and then dry them and feed them, and give them a spell, and then break them out again. They soon get to know what you want. 
"'but you can't break in horses on the move. "'The shifting and worry and noise and excitement "'put it all out of their heads. "'We have a fixed camp where we break them in, "'and a horse may know his work perfectly well "'when there's no one about, "'but bring him into the ring at night, "'and he's all abroad. "'Do you have to give them much whip? "'Not much. "'If a horse doesn't know what you want him to do, "'it only ruins him to whip him. "'But once he does a thing a few times, "'and then won't do it, "'then you must whip him. "'What about trick horses? "'A trick horse rolls a barrel, "'or lies down and goes to bed with the clown, "'or fires a pistol. "'Does any trick like that? "'Some small circuses make the same horses "'do both trick and ring work. "'But that's not a good line. "'A horse is all the better to have only one line of business, "'same as a man. "'How do you teach them tricks? "'Oh, it takes a long time, "'and a lot of hard work, and great patience.' Even to make a horse lie down when he's ordered takes a couple of months sometimes. To make a horse lie down, you strap up one leg, then pull his head round, and after a while he gets so tired of the strained position that he lies down, after which he learns to do it at command. If you want him to pick up a handkerchief, you put a bit of a carrot in it, and after a while they know that you want them to pick it up. But that takes a long time. Then a strange hand in the ring will flurry them, and if anything goes wrong... They get it all wrong. A good active pony with a bit of Arab blood in him is the best for tricks. What's a school horse? Ah, that's a line of business that isn't appreciated enough out here. On the continent, they think a lot of them. A school horse is one that's taught to do passaging, to change his feet at command, to move sideways and backwards, in fact, to drill. Out here, no one thinks much of it. But in Germany... "'where everyone goes to military riding schools, they do. "'The Germans are the best horse trainers in the world, "'and the big German circus proprietors "'have men to do all their business for them "'while they just attend to the horses. "'How long does it take to turn out a school horse?' "'Well, Chiarini was the best trainer out here, "'and he used to take two years to get a horse to his satisfaction. "'For school horses, you must have thoroughbreds, "'because their appearance is half their success.' We had a New Zealand thoroughbred that had raced and was turning out a splendid school horse, and he got burnt after costing a year's training. That's the luck of the game, you know. They keep at it year after year, and sometimes they die, and sometimes they get crippled. It's all in the luck of the game. You may give 50 pounds for a horse and find that he could never get over his fear of the elephant, while you give 10 pounds for another and find him a ready-made performer, almost. We passed out through the ghostly circus and the menagerie tent down to the stable tent. There, among a lot of others, a tranquil-looking animal was munching some feed, while in front of him hung a placard, Tiger Horse. That's a new sort. What is he, ring, trick, or school horse? Well, he's a class by himself. I suppose you'll call him a ring horse. That's the horse that the tiger rides on. Did it take him long to learn that? Well, it didn't take this horse long, but we tried eleven others before we could get one to stand it. They're just like men, all different. What one will stand, another won't look at. Well, goodbye. Just like men, no doubt. Most men have to carry tigers of various sorts through life to make a living. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We've got a few new reviews that we'd like to share with you. This one, great variety of stories, five stars. There's a story for everyone and every occasion on this podcast. 
I like listening to them while I'm on a walk or before going to sleep. Down from Natalie Thompson, Apple Podcast U.S. Thank you, Natalie. And this one, five stars. It's wonderful. The stories selected are timeless gems. I enjoy John's storytelling manner of reading because it was how we read to one another in my family as a child and then when my kids were growing up. Thank you for putting it out there. That one from Daisy Hoops, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, relaxing, five stars. It's perfect for my night right before bed. Your voice is so relaxing, it puts me in a trance. <laughs> that one from Apple Veggie, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, thankful, five stars. Wow, completely happy upon finding this gem. Started with Florence Nightingale, and although a short episode, it packed quite a punch. Well done. Down from Mildred's Marie, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, most enjoyable, five stars. Thanks for making available these classic quality stories in an enjoyable and engaging way. They help pass the time of my workouts. That was from Cargo, 1414, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to write these reviews for us. It helps other, it helps other people find us. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show and for sharing with others. That's the number one way that people find our shows. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales will be back next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Also, as a post note, if you like Edgar Allan Poe, we're doing The Black Cat at 1001 Classic Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. That's 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, available wherever you find your podcast. And next week, Sunday night, another Sherlock Holmes adventure, right here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll see you then.